Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters, and I want to welcome you to this resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. Mark Inc., uh, Making Abundant Riches Known in the Name of Christ, is a ministry designed to offer help and hope to hurting people. And I want to encourage you as you listen to this resource to think about Mark Inc. Ministries whenever you are confronted with someone who is hurting or in need of help to visit our website at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K-I-N-C dot org. And there you will find a whole variety of resources available to you. And they're all free of charge. And I pray that God will use this resource that you're listening to now to touch your heart and your life because it's been especially designed for you in mind. We have a wonderful guest with us here today. Uh, Stephanie Ubach is the former director of special needs at Mission to North America, which is a, an agency of the Presbyterian Church in America. She is the author of a, of a book called Same Lake, Different Boat. Same Lake, Different Boat. What an interesting title that is. She's the mother of two sons, the youngest of whom has Down syndrome. And Steph has led special needs ministries in her local church. And she has also served on the board of directors for several disability services and, and advocacy agencies and organizations. And she's well known as a speaker at conferences and churches where she shares her passion for creating a safe place for the church and for people who have disabilities. So we welcome you, Steph. It's great to have you with us here today, and I know God is going to use you in some very powerful ways through this resource. We also have with us my wonderful wife, the co-founder of Mark Inc. Ministries, Sharon Betters. And Sharon, why don't you take us off from here and let's begin this wonderful resource. Thanks, Chuck. And Steph, welcome. We're so excited to have you in the studio today. Oh, thanks for having me here. It's great to be here. We're looking forward to your story, a story that I know is going to offer help and hope to families and also give it a better insight into what it's like to raise a child who has uh, disabilities. And um, I'm excited to share your story. I know it's going to be an encouragement to so many people. So why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit about your family? Um, my husband, Fred, and I have been married for 33 years, and uh, we met in college. Eventually, uh, moved up towards Pennsylvania and had two sons after we moved into Lancaster County back in the in the late 80s. So our oldest son, Fred, is now, he's going to be 27 in January, and he's married to Cecilia, and they live in the Washington, D.C. area. And our younger son, Tim, is our son who has Down syndrome, and he's going to be 25 in January. So it's a big milestone birthday for him. It is a big milestone, and I'll bet you he's looking forward to celebrating it. Well, tell us about Tim's diagnosis. Yeah, well, he has Down syndrome. We did not know until after he was born. Back in 92, when Tim was born, it took a couple of days to get a karyotype back, right? And so that's the testing that they use to find uh, the extra chromosome, which is actually what defines Down syndrome, right? It's also known as trisomy 21. Uh, so it's, it's an extra copy of the 21st chromosome that that is what actually constitutes Down syndrome. There are actually a couple different varieties of Down syndrome, but the most common one. So we had no idea that Tim was going to have Downs when he was born. I opted out of the prenatal testing because I, we knew that we would not 
take any measures to abort a child who had special needs. And so we chose not to do the testing. I actually left a, a gynecology practice and obstetrics practice over that issue uh, because the physician basically told me that I was a fool if I didn't take the testing. And so one of the biggest surprises then to us, you know, was that Tim didn't really look at all like Freddie. And so I looked at Tim and I thought, well, you know, his, his face was really round. And I even noticed that his eyes looked a little bit different. But I looked around the room and nobody else seemed to be noticing anything. So, you know, I just kind of moved on and actually, you know, his APGAR scores, which I don't even know if they do that anymore, were actually better than Freddie's, you know, so I wasn't concerned, you know, particularly. Um, other than the whole day long at the hospital, everybody just seemed uh, weird. It's sort of like the idea that everybody was talking about us, but nobody was talking to us, right? And so I didn't have my typical OB you know, I had a new guy that when Tim was born uh, that my family physician was off that day. It was a Sunday. You know, so, so I attribute a lot of things to that. But anyway, by the time the evening came around, Tim was born in the morning. By the time the evening came around, the fellow who's the town pediatrician in Ephrata, you know, came in and um, he said, well, we believe Tim has a chromosomal abnormality. And, and so I I was like, well, what, what do you mean? He said, Down syndrome. And I just, as soon as he said that, I didn't, I couldn't remember exactly what it meant. I just, in my mind, I thought, I don't think this is, I don't think this is good. Which I can tell you 25 years later now, actually it's been, there's been a lot of things about having a child with Down syndrome that have been wonderful. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then, and I just kind of felt like the, even felt like the room was spinning. You know, I was there by myself. He, I mean, my husband was not there. So then I was left with this, even when he left the room, he said, we're going to do some testing. We'll know in a couple of days. You know, that was it. You know, he left the room. And then I remember even thinking, this is why I know I think I was in shock. I thought, I wonder if I should call Fred. So, so uh, some friends from church kept Freddie and Fred came over and called our parents and took it from there. What was his reaction when you told him? Um... Tears, uh, just like mine. I knew somebody with Down syndrome when I was growing up, right? But I couldn't even remember that, actually, exactly. I couldn't even remember exactly what the diagnosis was in terms of the specifics of what that actually meant, right? I just knew it meant a severe form of disability. Um, at least that's what I thought I knew. How about your family and friends? What, were, what was their response? Very encouraging. I think the biggest thing was the shock. We just were not expecting that. I was 31, right? And had had no issues with my pregnancy, so it just wasn't on our radar screen. I, when I look back at it now, I just think our closest friends from church had had two, not just one, but two children born with disabling conditions. So it wasn't like we were unaware. It's just a kind of the almost sort of the funny thing about disabilities is something we always, almost always think happens to somebody else, right? Mm-hmm. But our, our friends were very supportive and very encouraging. Our families were too. They all were from out of town, but came up the next day. Take us back over those first few weeks yeah. after the diagnosis was made. What uh, can you recall were some of the best things that happened and maybe even some of the worst things that happened during that time? Um, Probably some of the best things that happened were uh, that our our friends and, you know, from church and our family showed up, right? I mean, they were there. They were, I have just the clearest pictures in my mind of them, you know, looking through the glass window in the nursery. Tim was in an incubator and, you know— and that my parents were there, and Fred's parents had come up, and our pastor's wife was there, even though he was on sabbatical. And our best friends who had had, had two children with disabilities, they were just right there for us as well. And that was just such a, a blessing because Patty is my, my friend's name, and uh, 
she was, you know, she just knew what to say, what to do. She knew, you know, practical things we needed. And she was also willing to sit down and talk to me honestly about what some of this was probably going to mean, right? And so she was the first person who used the term mental retardation in my presence, right? Which mm -hmm. back in 1992 was still the terminology, now it's intellectual disability. And that was really helpful, right? Because I just needed somebody to say it, right? That was, that was the picture, it was the intellectual disability piece that I think I had in the back of my head, right? When I thought, I think I sort of kind of know what Down syndrome is, and I think this is sort of kind of what it means. That for me was one of the biggest things I think I had to work through It was, the realization that the yardstick by which we measure human value is often not what we think it is, right? And so I think having a child born with a disability challenges us that way to say, oh, wow, I put a whole lot more emphasis on human intellect than I actually was honest about. And how do I need to be transformed, right? And the way that I see other people as a result of that. I think the biggest things that were uh, tremendously helpful to us were, you know, I would say my theology was not particularly complex. It was God is great and God is good, you know, and, and just holding on to those realities. And the fact that I had really been, I was raised in a Christian home and my parents were always really very strong on the idea that every person is creating God's image. And I, I clung on to that just right out of the gate, you know, that um, God is great. Right. This is this is God was not asleep at the wheel when Tim was conceived, you know, with Down syndrome and and that God is good. He's got a good plan for Tim's life. He's got a good plan for our lives and that Tim is a person of immense value. Right. And I'm, and we're all going to learn a lot seeing the world in a different way than I would have had the opportunity to see it otherwise. So when we went to church the next Sunday, we that was when my friend Patty was really helpful. She said, you really need to go to church the first Sunday. People really need to meet Tim. You know, because they're going to have their own perceptions, right, of what this means. And we gave our friend who was the youth pastor was running the service that morning. So we gave him what we wanted to be the announcement, which was basically that we were welcoming our son Tim into the world, right? And that we were so um, – that he had been born with Down syndrome, but that, that, did, that we did not – expect people's condolences, right, for that, but that his life was a, a life worthy of celebration and we, we hoped that they would celebrate with us, right, that that he was our son and he was here. And that kind of set the pace right out of the gate, right, from the beginning. And and I think that was really, really helpful that to see Tim right from week one as a person of great potential, right, who was God was going to use to teach us all of us. And what a great teaching moment for the congregation, too. You were helping them to know how to respond and how to welcome Tim and and be helpful in your family, that this was a reason to celebrate. And the other thing that strikes me is how important it was for you to have somebody ahead of you in the journey, your friend Patty, who was so helpful. And that's kind of why we do these stories, because you're way ahead of the family that's welcoming a child with Down syndrome into their family right now. So you're kind of you're passing on what Patty has done for you um, in a really remarkable way. That's good. Talk a little bit more about the earlier question that I asked you about your husband's reaction and response to the diagnosis in the days and weeks to come. His relationship to you, the, your relationship yeah. to him seems to be very 
uh, close. Yeah. You have a, a deeply committed marriage. Mm-hmm. How important was his reaction? First of all, what was his reaction in the weeks to come? And how important was that for you? Um, it was very supportive and very honest. I mean, one of the wonderful things about my husband is he's incredibly um, unassuming and very honest and very caring. This is hard and we will be okay because God's got it, right? Mm-hmm. He's got us. And Fred was a real rock that way, um, but not in the not in the superficial kind of way, in just a very authentic way, right? So he cried with me. I cried with him. We. It's interesting. It, couples often process this type of thing really differently, right? And I'm not going to say like men process it this way and women process it that way because I think it, every couple is probably different. But and and what was interesting is I probably just because I was at home with the kids at that point, I was probably much more like focused on the in the moment what I need to do for Freddie and where do I what's the next time we, Tim and I need to be at Hershey Medical Center right mm-hmm. versus where Fred was Fred was pondering much more the longer term well how did it affect his life um yeah that's an interesting question well you know a, a couple of things one is when you have a, a child with special needs just by definition they we had a, a counseling pastor at our church that came and talked to us after Tim was born, and he was saying how every family has a pie of life, right? And so, and when you have a child with special needs, by definition, their piece of the pie is going to be bigger, right? Um, but that part of the balancing act is finding how much, right, how much bigger, and how do you not slice the pie so that everybody else in the family is not getting what they need. So to being, being careful about saying, I can do this much, but I can only do that much, or I need to get outside help back to your question, Chuck, is that in terms of your marriage, right, when you have a child that has a lot of needs and a lot of health issues, which Tim did have early on, then that just tends to chop into time that you would have as a couple, right? So had to work extra hard to communicate on a regular basis and and stay engaged that way. We had, my parents were very helpful. They gave us some, some money, allowed us to get a babysitter one night a week. So we, for a long spell, had somebody come in just for two hours so that we could just go out and get a cup of coffee and have eye contact. We can just connect with each other. Were there any moments that you can recall of tension between you and your husband where you weren't on the same page? Oh, sure. I think I'm, I mean, every marriage, I think, has its points when you're not on the same page. But probably one of the biggest challenges when Tim was growing up was figuring out the discipline, right? Because when you have kids with special needs that have intellectual disabilities, trying to figure out what they actually know or don't know about what you're asking them to do or not do. And agreeing on a system in terms of, okay, what's our collective plan going to be and how do we stick to it, right? Because one of the things that kids with special needs, especially intellectual disabilities, need is consistency. Not just consistent discipline, but consistent discipline that's administered the same way every time. If you have a kid who's, who tends to push the envelopes in a certain certain way, okay, how do we, how do we with one voice, right, respond to that no matter which parent has, is on? And and I think one of the harder things is when, you're, it, in my case, I was a stay-at-home mom, so I was around the guys all the time. So Fred would be over doing his engineering thing, you know, at New Holland all day, and then have to enter into that world where I'd already been through the sequential uh, timeout timer system. So it was a level in which I think it was that was a harder thing for him to do was to enter into what I had been doing all day long. Yeah, that's a good segue, I think, into uh, what were some of the challenges yeah. 
that you had in raising your son into adulthood? What were some of the things that perhaps maybe somebody listening to this resource who's way behind you, someone who's just starting out in this process, might be able to learn from you about some of the difficult challenges that you had in uh, in raising him? Yeah. The interesting dynamic at our house was our, our two boys, our oldest son, Freddie, was on the gifted end of the spectrum, the academic, academically di- gifted end of the spectrum. And then we had Tim, who had intellectual disabilities. So the interchanges between the two of them were sometimes developmentally, Freddie was actually way ahead of his biological age and the way he would think about things. And Tim developmentally was way behind how he would think about things based on his biological age. So we had kids that were two years apart, but more like sometimes six years apart. So you had the challenge also of training Freddie as to how he is to respond. Right, exactly. And allow him to still be the sibling and not to become the third parent, right? Mm -hmm. And that becomes a real challenge for parents with kids with disabilities. And um, I think one of the things uh, that I, I thought of when Tim hit, when Tim was maybe about 12, 13, 14, he really started to center at a way he had not, you were asking me it was difficult, what he had, that he had been kind of a whirling dervish up to that point. High energy, not particularly focused, right? right? You, you never knew what he was going to do. You never knew where, whether he was still going to be there when you turned around. And you also, uh, and then he also could be very single-minded. You know, with kids with Downs, often, not to not to generalize, but often there is a, a strong, for lack of a better term, a strong sense of stubbornness sometimes when they're younger, especially. And I really tried to, I think both Fred and I tried to learn to see that through. When is, when is this temperamental stubbornness, right? And when is this resistance because he doesn't really understand, right, what's being expected of him? So that kind of tied in with what I was telling you earlier. So you're getting to know your child well enough to do that. And then, it, you know, for Tim, a lot of things... A lot of ways to move him forward involved just constantly kind of staying one step ahead of the game, right? So you know you're going to go out. What are the things that could go wrong, you know, between the car and Walmart, right? What are the things that could go wrong? But once you start figuring that stuff that stuff out and start putting it in place on a consistent basis, it just becomes kind of a normal normal way of doing things. And then eventually that was, was that he really did just mature, Right. And so he started to center and he started to want to go with the flow and <laughs> go with the, the plan. And and I, if I had something I could tell parents who have a six year old who, you know, it actually does get easier. I wish somebody had told me it actually does get easier because um, it does. It does get easier. Yeah, I'd like to explore yeah. that a little bit. Sure. I remember the incident in the book of Exodus where the children of Israel were freed and um, God mapped out a route for them to take. And uh, the route that didn't seem to be an, an appropriate route, it looked like, well, this looks really difficult. And obviously what God was doing was helping them to see that they were not creatures of war. Uh, they had been slaves for so many years. And so he mapped out a route that would take them away from warfare rather than into warfare. Mm-hmm. And this amazing passage which says that you've not passed this way before. You've never been on this road before. And I remember when Sharon and I lost our son, Mark, we were on a journey that we had never traveled on before. This was brand new to us. We had had the opportunity over the years to minister to other people who had lost children, but not to ourselves. 
And so as I, as I think about this particular resource and somebody who is sitting there lis- listening to this resource right now, who's just starting out on that journey, they've never passed this way before. This is brand new to them. And here you are 20 some years later, you have walked the walk. You have gone to the warfare and you have walked the walk. What are some of the things these people who are listening to this resource can expect along the way? Now, granted, every family dynamic is different. Uh, You had a supportive husband. There might be some who don't have a supportive husband or spouse. Maybe they have three or four children rather than just one other. And uh, so I know the dynamic is different, but there are certainly some common ingredients that they can expect, things that are going to happen. You mentioned a couple of them already about centering and maturing and what have you. But help that family that's sitting there listening to this right now who are just starting out on this journey. I think one of the, one of the things that it, that's helped us along the way is to always have a vision for Tim's life, right? And not a vision in... Um, uh, as Freddie, Freddie very wisely said to me recently, he said, you can't plan someone else's life, but you can prepare for it. But I think that is what we tried to do with Tim's life is to prepare him for a, with the ec- expectancy of a full life, right? And so how do we prepare him along the way to have what would be a full and meaningful life on his terms, right? And I, that was part of it too, is is on his terms, not my terms. So he works for at a grocery store right now. He does carts in the evenings. Um, and he also works at a doctor's office doing uh, uh, electronic records for them, taking faxes and creating electronic records for them. Did you have that vision for his life immediately? Or did it take you a while to say to yourself, we really have to start focusing on the vision, or was there a, an incubation period for you where you you just really had to absorb what had just happened? Oh, it was definitely an incubation period of absorbing, right? The first whole year, I think, was that, and Tim had a lot of medical issues to process through as well. He had open heart surgery and bacterial spinal meningitis, and just a, it was in and out of the hospital frequently. But it's also just sort of a, we've, I would say my husband and I had multiple resets, you know, of, um, along the way too, where we would, things would be going really well for a while. And then we'd start to feel like we were, we were tilting, right. And either in terms of family balance or in terms of, for example, in terms of, you know, if Tim keeps going down this path, behaving this way, and we don't actually help him to get a a self-directed handle on that. How do we put the, pull the guardrails in a little bit tighter so that he's still moving independently? It does make sense. And I think you're saying you have to be really intentional. You yes, really you have do have to, to be, be very intentional. intentional. How did you know when those resets were necessary? You could just feel it. You could just feel it. You know how you have on the tires on your car, there are those wheel weights that they balance actually have tire width. And then you're driving and all of a sudden you feel like it's going whop, 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 whop. And you can just feel when it's out of balance. And then we would, you know, we could sometimes, Freddie was a good barometer for that. We could read Freddie's stress level, right? And, um, and that was sometimes a good barometer that maybe Tim's being a little too powerful here, right? <laughs> Tim's maybe got too big, big a piece of the pie at the moment, only because we've, you know, kind of drifted that way. And, and would you say that that's kind of, that goes back to what you were talking about earlier with, does he understand the expectations right. or is this someplace where we'd have to do a workaround? So behavior that is, you know, this is not going to be acceptable on a job. So we have to figure out a way to show him what the boundaries are, like you said, so that he's not pushing against the boundaries. Uh, they're keeping him 
on track. And the, and the biggest, you know, the biggest thing that I think we learned in that arena was really trying to always say, how do I model for you positively, right? Where you want to, where we need to go here, rather than just consistently tell you, no, you can't do that. You know, it was always, instead it was, how, what can I place before you that you can emulate? Just a lot of positive focus on positive role models and positive examples of what to do rather than being a consistent voice of no all the time, right? Here's What's the positive alternative to this negative behavior? <laughs> and were there things that Tim said, well, I'm, I'm going to do this with my life, or I want to do that because a friend of mine who's around the yeah. same age is doing the same thing, yeah. so I want to be able to do that. Yeah. How did you handle that, such as driving a car or the regular teenage things that a, a boy would want to do? The driving part, that was probably the hardest the hardest thing was driving. There are not very many things in our culture, especially for young men that are a rite of passage. Like, And so driving really is one of those few uh, type of things. And so... You know, Tim, I would be driving Tim. Tim was very, is very musical. He plays in the praise band at church. He did marching band and concert band in high school. And so we'd be back and forth, back and forth in the car. And he'd go, Mom, he goes, I know I could drive a car. And I'd say, Tim, I know you could learn to drive the car. There was no question in my mind you could operate a vehicle. And you know what? You could probably pass the written test online, you know. But... I was like, the problem isn't you. It's how everybody else drives. (laughs) And I said, you have to be able to think really fast to protect yourself from the way that all the other people break the rules. And he goes, you mean, (laughs) this is funny because if I say this the wrong way, when I said you have to be able to think fast, he goes, like you, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a heartbreaking moment for me when he actually said that. It was just one of those hard moments where you know that he knows that that he thinks differently and learns differently than than I do right and so, but I said in there that's when the tears started to roll you know that day in the car on his part and and I said looked at him and I said but Tim I promise you I will get you wherever you need to go you know I promise you that's my promise to you that I will get you where you need to go you know and then we will in every way help you to be as independent as possible but in ways that you'll still be safe. Steph, I'm, I feel kind of emotional about the picture you painted with Tim in the car and leading him to understand that decision on his own in a way, you know, that he, he's recognizing that that's a dream that he's not going to be able to have. Uh, rather than you saying, no, you can't drive, you don't know how to drive and, and all of those other things, you really protected his manhood, mm-hmm. I think. So let's go back to when he was little and it wasn't as easy to lead him to those kinds of decisions. Um, talk to those parents that are are thinking about how am I going to take this child to Walmart uh, or grocery shopping? What do I do when this child is uh, having a total meltdown and, and there's nothing I can say that's going to get him to understand this is not the right place for you or this is not the right behavior? One of the most challenging things with, for us with Tim when he was younger was that single-mindedness, right? So he would have in his mind that he was headed a particular direction, and that was not where we could go at that point in time. It might be something as simple as, like, 
he's he's going to go for a walk down to the road and we're trying to get in the car to go to the grocery store, right? So so I think one of the things we recognized early on is we, either we can get into a power and control struggle over every one of those episodes in the course of a day, right? Or we can try to find positive ways to redirect him so that as each day goes by, he is more and more making an internal choice, an internal positive choice to self-direct his own behavior, right? So what we would do is we would, I would often hold out both of my hands, like, and I would say, we can get in the car in the right side of the car or the left side of the car. And you can have a choice. You can pick either one. I, I don't really care which one, but we're going to get in the car. And he was still felt in control, right? That he could pick the right side of the car, or the left side of the car. And then, and then we would move forward. And so we made hundred choices a day using that basic little system in many ways for a long time. The other thing is using humor to redirect him. He has a really funny sense of humor. And for other kids, it might be something different, right? But something that clicks for him. So making it something goofy, you know, you could either be, uh, we always kid around that Tim has no hurry gene. So the point of rushing to get somewhere is not helpful. So you might use some really funny way of running to the car, right? Or you, or you might, but you also have to actually be really organized in your own mind, right? To know how do I set us up for success by planning in my mind what actually is going to be needed, not how fast I wish I could do this, but how long this is realistically is going to take, and then being being willing to adjust my own expectations, my own behavior as a parent based on that. What about um, how you felt physically with, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just thinking of, like you just said, a hundred times a day, yeah. you would think of a creative way to let yeah. Tim feel like he was in control mm-hmm. when he was little so that he could learn to make mm-hmm. the right choices. I'm thinking how exhausting that must have been for you. You, you have a little baby that um, first, he has a lot of medical issues and, and you're getting through that, and now you're raising a toddler or a four-year-old or a five-year-old, and he's, he's cognizant of having to make good decisions in his stubborn way. Right. How did you deal with exhaustion? Because you have another little boy that you're raising at yeah. the same time. He was extremely strong-willed, too. Yeah, it was, you know, self-care for uh, parents of kids with special needs is, really, is, is a really important thing and a really challenging thing. For me, it was swimming. I mean, getting physical exercise or playing racquetball. I needed physical exercise that actually, which actually, you know, elevates your endorphins and, you know, really just makes you physically feel better. But also, it's great stress release. Also, just having, uh, just going out and doing things for fun. And it didn't have to be, you know, if you're a stay-at-home parent with kids with special needs, you may not have a lot of, of money, but you can grab a couple of friends at jerky go bowling, you know, for two bucks. I tried to keep my sense of humor. I think that was one of the big things that helped me a lot too. Most things when they're really frustrating aren't funny in the moment, but sometimes if you look back on them afterwards, they really are really funny, you know? So, you know, I think one of the things uh, at this stage looking back, I think I would encourage parents is that the, the relentless amount of energy it takes to actually help your child to develop the social skills that they need to succeed in life is absolutely worth it. And in order to do that, you also have to take care of yourself, right? So it's not either or. It's not like sacrifice yourself on the altar of developing the, the skills your child needs. But but be focused on doing that because there is developmentally, you know, there really is a window, I think, right? And then that the, the time and energy you put in early on on communication, on mutual respect. Well, one of the, you talked about, um, I feel like you need to give caregivers, the parents, 
permission and empower them and not just empower them, but say, this is a requirement. You must give yourself permission to take care of yourself. And, and you think about that example of being on the airplane and the uh, airline attendant says, if you have a small child with you and the oxygen mask falls down, you breathe yours through yours first, and then you give it to the child. And so the same principle applies here with raising children with disabilities is you must take care of yourself if you're going to be any good to them. I mean, what you're talking about is not just physical energy, but mental and emotional energy where you're constantly on and thinking about how am I preparing this child, not just for today, but Mm -hmm. for life Mm -hmm. um, when I'm not around. And um, all those things that take so much time are are so helpful. That's why Tim is such a nice young man Mm -hmm. today, because you worked so hard when he was little in preparing him for that. Here you are 20. How old is, is Tim now? 25. So you're 25 years down the road, and you have a very positive, very upbeat approach to all of this, but I am pretty sure not everybody's going to have that positive, upbeat approach. They're not always going to be able to see the, I'll put it in quotes here, the funny things that happen that you can really just sit back and enjoy that Tim did or does. Speak to that person who right now is, I want this kid out of my life. I don't want him here anymore. I can't do this. This is too much for me. I need to, I need to somehow get away from this. Mm. Or even in that context, I want you to think about a couple who are not on the same page, mm. who are approaching it from two different perspectives, and that in and of itself is causing severe conflict between them. Because you have a positive approach, mm. Let me caveat that for a second. After we lost our son, Mark, uh, there was a woman who attends another church somewhere else who made it her mission to heal us. She was going to heal us. You know, praise the Lord, your son is dead because he's a Christian. Why are you mourning? Why are you grieving? He's with the Lord. So why are you why are you grieving? And she was there. Um, we were kind of... Uh, railroaded into this and we were confronted with this this approach or the woman who praised the lord i have cancer sharon had uh, stage three breast cancer at one point and uh, we could not get to the point where we said praise the lord she has cancer or praise the lord we lost our son right. now we're there in a i think a much more mature way now but i'm thinking about that person's listening to you they're they're hearing how you're approaching all of this. For you, it's you're very upbeat, very positive, and you're looking at these things from uh, the perspective of, uh, I'm, I'm rolling with this. Mm-hmm. I am going to roll, but not everybody feels that way. So speak to that person right now who's sitting there saying, lady, I can't do what you're doing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you were able to do it. I'm glad it worked for you, but come on. What would, what would you say to her? I would say that there were there were a lot of dark and negative moments in my life too, and just by temperament, I tend to be a, a positive thinker, and so I think that was a that was a gift. I would say I definitely authentically grieved. Uh, I did not grieve Tim's birth. I grieved the loss of the child I expected to have. Right. So and and at the same time celebrated the receipt of Tim. Right. So same thing with you know one of the hard things when you have a child with developmental disabilities is watching them miss all their milestones. You 
take your kid to nursery at church, right? And the other kids are walking and yours is still trying to sit up, right? And so those kind of things are those are those raw fingernails on the flesh of your heart moments, right? Where you, are you, I, I've heard the phrase before that, um, but the idea that um, there's a chronic grief that comes with disability and there is a chronic grief and it doesn't, it's not that it's constant, but it's, there's a level which it's always back there, right? And so I can have a lot of fun with him today. I can feel good about where his life is today. And then I still, even in those moments, we are at a different place in our mid-50s and our other friends who have the empty nest, right, and are able to do different things because they had two people that were working all along and we didn't, right? And those kind of things are some very practical things at that level. From that level when Tim was younger, there were lots of different things related to friendships, school inclusion that were a... a a challenge, right, on, on a regular basis. And the thing I would encourage people to do is to is to get the professional help you need to get on the same page as, as a couple because there is no way that this world is easier to live alone than together. It's too, I think it's important, too, to recognize that different people have different needs. So for me, maybe I needed to go play racquetball and go swimming. For another mom, she might need to go get her nails done. Do you know what I mean? And each person needs to live consistently with how they're wired. And what that may mean is that one family may need more practical supports than another family who has a quote-unquote same situation, right? Um, just because you have different personalities in the parents, different personalities in the siblings. And that it's really okay to do that. I, I think uh, it's very easy, you know, for people in anything in life to want some formulaic, you know, kind of answer to, oh, you know, Tim's doing really well. What did you do right? Well, I don't know that I necessarily did anything right. We just kind of did the next. And I don't know that it's any, even redoing the same things with another child would get you the same result. In, in God, it's just like with your other kids. In God's kindness to us, Tim is functioning very well, right? But it, it, I have said a lot of things I didn't do very well as a parent either. And there are a lot of parents I know who are actually probably much better parents than I am and have kids who are still much more challenging, you know, as they're older. So it's not, you know, it's not that kind of, that kind of formula. And, you know, I think too, different parents have, different mothers have different needs. So I think to universally say, for example, and in some circles, this may seem like heresy, but it's not all moms necessarily are wired to stay home with their child with special needs. Some families, it might be the dads that are going to actually function a whole lot better. Or it may be better that for both parents to work, you know, and to actually have, uh, for example, a child that has, maybe has a ton of medical needs to have actually have more medical assistance, you know, because some people really get rejuvenated by being able to be invested in the kind of work that actually kind of fills their soul, you know, and helps them to be able to, to just operate in their zone of how they function so that they actually can sacrifice more, right, at, at other times. Uh, some, a friend and I used to always say that we really wish that the whole workplace environment was more flexible than it is. Mm -hmm. If both of us could have worked halftime, we would have been actually really happy with that mm -hmm. arrangement. It's just difficult to get it, right? So I, so I try really to be very careful to not guilt the mom that doesn't mm -hmm. want to stay home full-time with her child or not guilt the dad who <laughs> wants to do something different either. So in a typical day, raising a child with Down syndrome... Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm talking yeah. now about the young child. Right. The uh, in a typical day, mm -hmm. how much time should a parent take outside of that child 
In other words, how much time should they take away from that child mm -hmm. for their own benefit, mm -hmm. for to regain, as you, you like to refer to it as getting reset? So if you are, for example, a stay-at-home mom, right, who's, you have a child who's in school, Use that time when they're at school to take care of yourself. You know, don't feel like you have to do everything from the PTA that comes down the pike just because you don't have a paying job. So if what you need to do is, you know, you're an introvert and you need downtime to read, read for two hours every morning. You know, do whatever it is you need to do to recharge your batteries so that you can be on right when that school bus door opens. Because you may be on nonstop from three to nine, right, trying to make dinner and all. You know, that's another thing. You know, organize yourself in a way that's going to help that evening to go more smoothly for you as well. If it makes sense to eat a crockpot meal every day for the next 10 years and throw it in the crockpot in the morning so that you can just give, give you know, your undivided attention to what needs to be done in the afternoon. So lots of good planning, being intentional I think about so. the planning yeah. and, and the discipline. And, and I like what you said, that it's the same. It, it may look different, but it's really the same. Yeah. You're preparing your child for the future uh, the same way you would a child that is not disabled. So you know, can, I, can I say one more thing I was thinking about? Mm -hmm. You know, the whole, we haven't talked about the whole idea of acceptance, you know, and, and I think this comes into play even in how you live life. I've seen this actually in a lot of families. It, we, I have this little phrase that say, rushed resolution results in resignation. Right. Rushed resolution results in resignation, that there is at every stage in life a certain wrestling with acceptance that goes on, whether it's the diagnosis originally or dealing with now, what does this look like in toddlerhood, too? And, and that includes being realistic then about how long it actually takes to get somewhere, how long it actually takes to get dressed or how long. Right. <laughs> and so in allowing your your life to be adjusted by those things. And so if you're not in a state of acceptance, you're going to constantly be fighting against that, right? And with the, the degree to which you're always fighting because you're always rushing because you're not accepting the time frame of what it takes, for example, is the degree that the stress level at your house is just going to be super high. And for us, some of the things that meant was in, again, different families might do it differently, but for us, it was doing fewer things. We had friends, I had friends that they always took their young kids to the beach at the end of the summer for a day trip to the beach. That was a disaster for me. I mean, Tim wasn't potty trained, even though he was like five. So like going to the beach with diapers and nowhere to change. Like, so, so there are things that we just voluntarily did not do. Now I can go to the beach now. We can go to the beach now and we're good. That's fun. That's where we've been able to go to the beach for 10 years, but not then, right? And so sometimes it was just saying, not now, right? Maybe later. Not now. And, that, and there's a grief with that, right? Because everybody else is doing something that you would like to be doing. I think that's why having a, as many friends as possible who are experiencing some of the similar things is why Down syndrome support groups or if you're a child with autism, autism support group is helpful. Well, thinking about uh, some of the griefs, I, I can understand what you're talking about with the, it's a grief, the chronic grief mm -hmm. of, I mean, I think of that even with the our own son mm -hmm. that he was 16 when he had his accident and so watching his friends get married and have children and those kinds of things of course we're delighted for them mm -hmm. but in our deepest part of our souls there's a grief mm -hmm. that our son Mark will never we won't get to have the joy of those experiences with him but let's uh, look at the joys that you mentioned in the beginning that you've had 25 years of joys mm -hmm. with Tim too what yeah. what would you say were some of those joys that are unique to raising Tim. Tim says this, uh, 
he has this unique perspective on things. You know, everybody else can be thinking one way about something in the room, in the family, right? And then Tim says something, and everybody does a hard right-hand turn, right? And everybody turns around, their jaw drops like, that was so profound, right? Is that typical? That was pretty typical. I can certainly say that's been God's gift that he's given Tim. Mm -hmm. And let me give you an example. We... uh, he had been going through a phase where he was ready to take communion at church. But we had been at church, and the, and the um, bread and the cup were passed. And I looked next to me, and Tim was standing there, and there were tears streaming down his face. And um, I get home, and I said, Tim, I said, why were you crying? He said, um, he said, well, I love Jesus just like you do. And we just hadn't gotten around yet to you know, doing the things we need to do at church for him to to be part of the communion process. Wow. And so, and I looked at him and I said, I don't think so. I think you love Jesus much more than I do because I have never sat there and wept because I couldn't take communion. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the way that Tim, that's not a joyful thing necessarily. That's a profound kind of thing. But there have been lots of other times where, you know, he's an incredible gift with people like in hospital visitation. Tim just has a way of of just touching people, that it's hard to even actually put words to it. He just really has a very tender, very tender heart that just comes through. So forcing yourself and forcing others, and maybe forcing is not the right word, but encouraging yourself and encouraging others to look beyond the disability to the character of the person. Because I, I, in preparation for this interview, I was telling Sharon that throughout my whole life, any child with Downs that I've ever seen always has a smile on their face. Mm-hmm. They don't. They haven't learned from us how to be miserable. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's a there's an education process that uh, what is it Exodus four eleven gives us? Who made the blind blind? Who yeah. made the lame? Etc. And th- that God orchestrated from the very beginning who this child would be. Yeah. And uh, and He designed that child to come into your home mm-hmm. to be with this couple to have this older brother, and that was the context into which God placed him to see beyond the disability to the character of the person, I think is extremely critical for a parent to be able to do, just as you said, to actually see him crying Mm -hmm. uh, while you're taking communion, Mm -hmm. to to sense uh, there's a spiritual sensibility to him that maybe we don't have. Right, exactly. So it's, it's so easy, I think, for people. And this is certainly where what my starting point was when he was born, right? Where I would have been at that juncture in my life would have been to see the disability first, mm-hmm. right? And, and of course, like we said, there certainly is an element of the present of arrival of the disability itself that's that brings a certain level of grief because there is loss. I, I sometimes I compare disability to poverty, in the sense it's a lack of an essential resource of some type. So, but it doesn't mean that it defines that person. And that's where we get ourselves into trouble, right? Is that we simplistically define people by some type of resource that may be lacking in some area, but fail to see then that often there's actually a, a, a significantly compensating gift, right? Mm-hmm. In some other way, and, and like the joy of many children with Down syndrome. Um, not all of them are positive, but many, many are. And that there's that element of, of joy and love that often, I've heard somebody say that it's the extra chromosome, it's the love chromosome. But learning, and part of the problem is we're, we're trained to see gifts in a 
in a, the way that we're used to seeing them, right? And so what happens with people with disabilities, we often, we, we either dismiss them, right? Or we completely miss the actual gift that is right in front of our eyes because we're not seeing it for what it is. I mean, um, often even people with Down syndrome who sometimes have very limited language skills can have, prof- God get, sometimes gives them profound gifts of uh, almost a prophecy. I'm not hyper-spiritualizing something. I've just seen this with people where they don't necessarily have very great language gifts, but they'll, they have one or two things that they that they can say clearly, and those things have profound import, right? And they will deliver it like a message, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it gets delivered to each person that they meet. And it's just amazing to see how God uses even that just very defined and confined even uh, gift of language in a very specific way. So. Yeah, Steph, when I was a child, I remember I was about nine years old, so that's many, many years ago. My first observation of somebody with Downs was an uncle. Mm-hmm. He was an adult. He came from a large family, lots of brothers, lots of sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were all on my father's side. I had never met this man. And I remember the first time I saw him, he scared me. I was afraid. I thought, what is wrong with him? He looks different. He's acting different. And for the longest time, I was afraid of my Uncle Francis. And uh, I, I started thinking to myself, what, what is he going to do if all these people that are taking care of him die? What, what, what is he going to do? What will happen to him? So my fear started changing into pity. And then along the way, as I matured and as I grew up and specifically as I came to know Christ— I started thinking about that part of my extended family, and none of them are believers. None of them were Christians. In fact, they were uh, anything but. But I will never forget how much they all loved my Uncle Francis. He was the center of attention in that home. When the uncles would come to visit, when the aunts would come to visit, the first one they went to was Uncle Francis. And he just beamed whenever anybody came into the room. So my fear turned into pity. What's going to happen to him? All these people love him. And they didn't know Christ. And so I I have to wonder about those of us who do know Christ. And let me give you another caveat here before you answer this question. A few years ago, back in the era of when everybody was afraid of AIDS, and we had all kinds of misconceptions about HIV-AIDS, and we didn't want to be around anybody. We didn't want them sweating on us, you know, the, the whole extreme view that uh, some of us held. A couple in our church decided to adopt an AIDS baby. Uh, we ran into all kinds of obstacles at that point informing people. Is this baby going to be in the nursery? Is this baby going to touch my baby? Is this baby going to be part of my, uh, the children's program here? And there were a lot of fears that a lot of people had until we got to know her. And when we got to know her, we fell in love with her. That family had to teach us as a church. They had to teach us how to love someone different from us. And so I'd like to ask you this question. I'm talking to you about a family who did not know Christ, who loved their son, their nephew, their their, uh, their brother, and they loved him with no conditions attached. I saw that in non-believers. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't I expect more 
in non uh, that I do in non-believers with believers? Shouldn't I expect more from the Christians? And what role did Christ play in your marriage, mm-hmm. in how you raised your son, uh, how you're raising your son? What role should our faith play in this? And can you tell us about that? Well, you, th- that was a great story that you told Chuck, and and. It reminded me of something that Tim Keller said one time. He was saying how sometimes he said people come to New York City and they actually have a crisis because they meet all these unbelievers who actually look more like Jesus than the Christians that they know. And he says, he says, well, does that? Why does that surprise you? Because if we're all created in God's image, right? And so there are ways that they're imaging God, right? Um, and and also the idea that. Uh, why do you think you are believers? Is it because you're better, smarter, wiser than, or more righteous than everybody else? So we shouldn't be surprised, right, when somebody who is an unbeliever actually looks more like God sometimes than we do. When it comes to people with disabilities, I think it, it is that was a great thing that we talked about earlier in terms of focusing on the disability. So often, that's right where our eyes go instead of seeing the per- person as a person, right? Tim and I did a little thing for children's worship one time at a local church, and we used a little Down syndrome video on more alike than different. You know, I think you just have to remember where no matter how somebody's body may be different than ours or their mind may work different than ours, we're still all more alike than different, right? Because we all share the two common pillars that are necessary in any relationship and and a need for grace, right? Where we, uh, how do we operate with each other in our shared brokenness? And we all experience brokenness in all different aspects of every dimension of our personhood and a shared image of God. How do we how do we show value and recognize value and look for value in every person, um, regardless of whatever their uh, abilities or disabilities might be? So as far as um, our faith, you know, I think one of the, again, one of the great things, one of the great gifts that Tim has brought to our family, I think, is the is really a simplicity of of faith, right? In the sense that First of all, remembering that faith is a gift from God, right? And so if faith is a gift, then any person to whom God gives it, he also gives the capacity to receive it. So our kids with special needs who may have may not have like incredible, they may not have theology degrees, right? <laughs> they often know Jesus, right? At, at a level that you and I do not, right? And and so they they are our teachers. People with intellectual disabilities often are a tremendous gift to the church that way because of the the both the simplicity and the genuineness of their faith. They don't get all tangled up in theological arguments over terminology that they can't um, even pronounce. Tim also has uh, a profound awareness of his sin. And so when Tim got himself into trouble for something that he shouldn't have done when he was in, in high school one time, and he came home and and he had just sat through a sermon at church, and he looked at me, and he just about went ash, and he said, Jesus died for that. That thing that I did, Jesus went out to the cross for that for me, and he burst into tears, and he threw himself on the floor, and he started bawling. Now, talk about true repentance, right? He just made this absolute crystal clear connection between a choice he had made that was not a godly choice, right, and 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 the actual sacrificial work of Jesus on his behalf that was more crystal clear than I have seen it in in probably most of the time in my life and in most other people's lives that I know. I could see somebody sitting there listening to you right now who's thinking to themselves, well, lady, I'm glad that Jesus thing works for you, but it's not going to work for me. 
uh, you don't understand how difficult this is. Maybe I'm raising this child by myself. Maybe my husband's on or my wife is on the different page. This child is unbelievably undisciplined. And on and on the list goes. What would you say to that person who says, well, I'm glad that's working for you, but it's not going to work for me? Yeah, let me let me answer that question first from Tim's perspective, because Tim, Tim and I had had some interesting conversations over the years of what it means to have Down syndrome. And I, you know, and in terms of talking about some of the limitations, like whether you'd be able to drive or not and some of those kind of things. And uh, and I remember saying to Tim, God did give you Down syndrome for a reason. You were created for a purpose and you were created for a good purpose. I said, but you're going to have to find out what it is. And and so part of your journey in life is to say, God did create me with Down syndrome for his glory and my good. What does that mean? Right. What does that mean for me in terms of how? So what I would encourage you as a, as a parent out there who maybe is really angry at God, right, who you are in your grief process and you are still really frustrated, your life is not going well, your marriage isn't going well, maybe school isn't going well, your child may have all sorts of challenging behaviors. And I'm not minimizing any of those in any way, shape, or form. They're very real and they're extremely difficult. But they don't change the goodness of God, right? <laughs> that we do have a God who who is not only transcendent, right, high and above all things in the universe, right, and over and truly is in control of what goes on in the world, but also a God who comes close to us, who comes near to us, who moves towards us and and move toward us, towards us at great personal expense to himself. And I would say to you that he is big enough for you to cry and scream and rant and and have a temper tantrum or whatever you, you need to do, and and he can handle it, right? I mean, that's part of being transcendent. And at the same time, in his eminence, he, he actually gave himself. He came in the form of Christ to come and and relate to you to say, I can help you. I want you to be my child. I want you to know me personally. But you have to come to the end of yourself and say, I can't do this, right? I mean, part of the, the gospel message is that you can't do it. You can't do it. I can't do it. I can't, I can't earn my own righteousness before God. I can't handle my own life. Well, Jesus had this rich young ruler who came to him and said, what must I do to be saved? Yeah. And Jesus said, well, you know the law? The uh, Ten Commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And the man said, um, I've done all these things since I was a child. And then Jesus said, well, then go and take everything that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. He didn't do that. The man did not do that. He walked away and uh, because his wealth was more important to him. You speak of somebody coming to the end of themselves that you have to come to the end of themselves. Let's just suppose right now somebody's listening to this who says, yeah, that's me. I have come to the end of myself. What must I do to be saved? You throw yourself at Jesus. You know, I mean, one of the things, one of the beautiful things about disability and, and the gospel is that, is that the whole idea that it was our profound spiritual disability, right? <laughs> that caused Jesus to come and make access to God on our behalf. He is our ramp, right? He's our ramp to life, to life itself. And so God is offering us life, and he's offering us abundant life. And that doesn't mean, doesn't mean life at the mall. The beauty of, of the gospel is that God brings us to himself by giving up himself. So, so he, so by you know, saying, I can't, I can't do this, God. I cannot 
do or be what I need to be. I need you desperately. I need you desperately. Please be there for me in Jesus and help me to understand what that means day by day. Help me to know you, who you are, be real in my life, right? Become my savior, save me from myself, be with me in my challenges. Steph, I'm I'm going to pretend that I'm a yeah. mother who's yeah. just realized that she has given birth to a baby with diagnosed with Down syndrome. All right, so I'm that woman. I'm going to talk like her right now right. to you. My heart is broken. Mm -hmm. This is not what I wanted. Mm -hmm. This is not what I dreamed about. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'm happy to have a beautiful baby, and, and you say I can fall in love with this baby, but this is not the life I dreamed about. I, I don't know where to go from here. Mm -hmm. I feel as though I've been put in a prison, mm -hmm. and this is, this is going to be myself for the rest of my days. I, I, the first thing I would say to you is, is that there is a legitimate grief that you will have to process through. And so being honest and authentic with yourself about that this is not the life that you wanted, right, is a, is a good starting point because it's honest. But not getting the life that you wanted does not mean that the life that you have cannot be a great life because it can be a great life. Because a lot of times what we think that we that what we want in life it's not actually what we need. And that's where, that's where knowing God makes a huge difference because when, when we know God personally and we truly believe that God is great, that God is good, that God is, has sacrificed himself in order to bring me closer to himself, then, I can, then I, can, I can choose to trust him to put my weight forward, right, that God has a good plan for my life and for the life of my child and that I will actually get what I need by leaning into the plan that God has for me right, rather than fighting for the, the ideal of what I had for my life. So for me, for example, I wanted to go into academia. I was teaching on the side. I was going to get my PhD in economics. And, and I still fought for that dream for a while until it became really evident that was not going to work. I, I had to grieve the loss of that dream. But when I turned and embraced the life that God had given me, and I embraced it, uh, the life that he'd given me in Tim, not to become the world's... Uh, number one Down syndrome mom, right? But just to become Tim's best mom. To say, what can I learn from Tim? How can I be who God's called me to be in the place that I am, even this, this is not where I had intended to go? And how can I trust him for that? God has given me a great life. He's given us a great life. And not because we necessarily have had great outcomes with Tim, but God has given us many, many great moments, right? Many great moments where he has blessed our lives infinitely. We often say this in our extended family, how if we cannot imagine our life as, an, as a family without Tim because of all the ways that God has changed us, right? Because of Tim's presence in our lives. Thank you, Steph, so much for sharing your story of help and hope. I know that there are hurting people who are going to be encouraged and energized and better equipped to walk the path that God has placed them on. Thank you so much for being willing to call back to those coming behind you. We are so grateful to you. And to you, the listener, I thank you for listening, and I want to invite you to visit markinc.org, where you will find numerous stories of help and hope, stories that take you right into the heart and lives of people who have experienced very difficult life circumstances, who share how they found a way to navigate, how to walk by faith, how to find a way out of the darkness and into the light, uh, the light that we know 
comes from Jesus Christ. Uh, so visit markinc.org. Let us know what you think of the resources. Let us know if there is any way that we can help you. Our phone number is 1-877-M-A-R-K-I-N-C. That's 1-877-M-A-R-K-I-N-C. My name is Sharon Betters, and you have been listening to a resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries that offers help and hope to the hurting.